Kara. <laughs> I need a haircut. Look at me. I'm like very woolly today. How are you? Woolly. <laughs> Feeling woolly. Um, the semester is basically done. Yeah. Um, and so as soon as grades are in, which I'm waiting on a few people to turn things in late, I'm done. And yeah. I'm on leave and don't teach again for nine months. Right on. The only thing you have left to do is one more interview with me next week, and then you're free, right? I am. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. I'm sorry. Oh I'm sorry to be leaving you, but I am very excited about some unstructured time to work on the things I need to work on. That's okay. We haven't actually even told our listeners that you're going to be gone. So, like, like they're gonna, they're like, they're like, what? They're not going to want me back since we have Malika coming in. Yeah, we're going to have Malika Sarma joining us. Uh, not this episode, obviously. Not next episode, but the episode after that. So uh, it won't be the first one you hear in January because Crystal Patil will probably be the first one you hear in January. But the next one you hear after that will be Malika Sarma, who folks will know from an interview episode? a thousand years ago. Yeah, like a well, long time ago we interviewed her. Did we interview her more than once? I can't remember. We talked to her a lot. Oh, no, she, I know, she's like I friend, talked to her so much, I she's can't like, parse it out. Yeah, yeah. It's like friend of the pod. Did I talk to you on the pod or next to the pod or whatever? So anyway, we will have her on the pod host co-hosting and digressing in the same spirit as me and Kara for next semester. No, she's going to be so much better. It'll be great. It'll be different. I'm just passing the baton. We have a rapport, so... Uh, I am I am relieved that it is someone I have a rapport with like you. Um, I, as I, I love all my co-hosts, and I have two podcasts, but, you know, uh, chemistry is not a magical thing that you just It's not have. automatic. Yeah, it's not automatic. Doesn't, so doesn't that way. we have it. I like it. Don't ever go away. <laughs> Except for the semester in which ex- I'm going ex- away. <laughs> or if you go away, just promise promise me you'll come back. So anyway, what do, in our penultimate episode of your half of the season, yes. who are we talking to? Dr. Elizabeth Miller, who I actually know <laughs> because, of course, she got her PhD from Michigan. She did. I'm looking at that right now. <laughs> actually, Elizabeth, uh, I met Elizabeth at my very first HBA meeting, or at least I saw her talk because oh. I remember learning about <laughs> – well, I, I remember meeting her formally at uh, the Knoxville meeting where I met probably half of my friends or three quarters of them, honestly. Those meetings were great meetings. I love those Knoxville meetings. Was there more than one? Well, because like HBA and ABA, so I always say oh, meetings because yeah, 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 more yeah. than one conference. It's just yeah. So uh, me too. And it was weird because at the time I drove up there. I don't remember if I was presenting or not. I, I was presenting. It didn't go particularly well. But all the side convos that I had turned into my career. It's so weird in the workshops that I went to. I remember seeing Elizabeth give a talk at the Albuquerque meeting, which was the same year I gave a talk. And I mean, I, I know that because I've only ever given one talk at the HBA in all the years wait, I've been. Wait, just, wait, aside from wait. that flash talk I did, I've only ever given wait, one, one podium talk. Yep. Um, and it was my very first time. What? <laughs> just, I'm sorry, you've blown my mind. I don't understand this. The only times I've ever applied to give podium talks since I've been punted to poster. So I've only ever given one podium talk at HBA, except for the flash talk. No, I take that back. I'm sorry. I did one that was in the HBA AAPA mm-hmm. at the time, a co-session. Uh, Michael Meal and yeah. I put it together. So I take that back. I'm a liar. Um, I've given two talks, but anyway, the very first one, she gave a talk on immunoglobulin A 
and milk. And I had never heard of immunoglobulin A at the time. And I learned about immunoglobulins and uh, how you can study them. And it kind of was in the back of my mind when I started the tattoo study and we look at immunoglobulin A. So long story Very short, cool. short, so short story long. It. She did. She did. Story long. I like that. I am always yeah. good about telling a, 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 something that could be pithy and dragging that fucker out. Mm, so anyway, let's see. Is she here yet? She's not. How upset are you She's, about Bama? I'm not even remotely upset. <laughs> that tone of voice is not convincing. It was oh, we have a great band. Oh, uh, well, we're, uh, if you're asking about football, we're fifth in the country. I mean, who can really complain? I mean, we're not in the play- playoffs but when the playoffs happen we will be every single time so i'm like one year we're not in the playoffs our quarterback got fifth in the heisman you know that's terrible that's awful we must be an awful team you know our basketball team because michigan our, is in the you guys are doing great our basketball team beat the number one team in the country yeah Ooh. um right. man I've, I've been a gym Harbaugh fan from the beginning. It's it's fun to make fun of Michigan, but when they wanted to fire him, I'm like, who the hell are you going to get that's better than that? Just mm-hmm. give him time. So Give him time. I mean, that's how I feel about Freeman here at Notre Dame. A lot of people were, like, outraged with the start of the season. Like, dude, he just started. Give him a freaking chance. And he ended the season quite strong, honestly. Yeah. I think you guys might end up uh, – you guys as Notre Dame. Notre Dame ended up playing well, too. He started off kind of – dodgy but no one expected a whole lot from a first year head oh, coach no, they who, did that's the problem is they totally did and then they, they remembered oh shit he's a first year coach yeah they did <laughs> and they didn't you know they always do that they always eviscerate people and then they're like oh yeah look at that that first year they they did shit the bed a few times but ultimately they did great hold it uh, together yeah yeah and i think you guys might basketball team is amazing yeah um there's a lot of sports that don't get talked about. Um, our I'm going to brag on women's basketball because they beat UConn the other day, and I went to that game, and it was nuts. Our was women's so soccer fun. team made the semifinals and didn't hmm. get nearly as much attention. I watched mm-hmm. the quarterfinals here when they played. Notre oh Dame gosh. made it to the quarterfinals as well. I'm blanking out on who they played, but, oh, my God, they were so good. And then they played USC, and USC was amazing. They, they could not get a possession from USC because they just mm. controlled the entire game. And, you know, football gets all the glory. But, wow, we've got mm. some really amazing athletes at our on our campuses. Agreed. Agreed. I have also determined that, like, cheerleaders are way underappreciated for their athleticism. Oh, my God. They're so athletic. They're constantly doing – even the mascots are freaking working their mm-hmm. asses off. I had a cheerleader in my class, and he said he had to cheer – Four games in five days. Mm. And, like, male cheerleaders need crazy upper body strength because people's lives are literally in their hands. Yeah, and yeah. I am they're always real buff. Yeah, I'm convinced they're the strongest athletes possible because, literally, they screw up. Someone could get very hurt. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about Brittany Griner coming home? One of my friends Super excited about that. is uh, buddies with her, so wait, I work wait, with... Wait, 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 wait. Back up. I work, I, I work <laughs> with a former women's basketball player here at ua she was a professional player as well till she her shoulder i think blew out uh so she's friends with her we chat about that i know people Um, have like given a lot of flack that maybe it wasn't a fair deal but i guess the the russian guy's sentence was almost up anyway i mean you take a deal that take the deal that you can get i mean yeah exactly exactly it it was all it was all staged to embarrass the united states in multiple ways 
And I got to say, what pleases me is that, I mean, Brittany Griner, African-American, female, LGBTQ, and then the drug issue is just a vape pen. Like all of the intersectionality in her story made it the kind of story that in a previous decade, she would have been ignored. And the fact that like mm-hmm. nobody, like where I was watching, it didn't become all those side issues. It became just bring this young person home. And then also mm-hmm. there's other people home, but you know, like it's, they're, they're trying to embarrass, have. they're trying to embarrass us. And if we try to hold out for those other people, we're going to fail. Just let them, mm-hmm. let, let's let us be embarrassed and get our people home. I don't give a <laughs> shit about being embarrassed. Right. Anyway. Anyway, speak, Dr. Elizabeth Miller com- is here. Completely un- unrelated. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't even introduce her properly aside from, mm-hmm. hey, Elizabeth, how are you? Good. How are you? We are good. We're just, we, we digress even in our introductions. But before we jump into this, let me just say we're really, really happy to have Associate Professor of, Bio- of Anthropology, Biological Anthropologist Elizabeth Miller uh, with us today from the University of South Florida. Uh, she has expertise in human milk, in immune response. She's a biological anthropologist specializing in human biology with an interest in evolutionary and biocultural approaches to maternal and child health uh, with a research program with projects in Kenya and United States. I'll skip the rest of the words because I already said all of those. Welcome to the show. And I think you're still doing all that same stuff. So, you know, if you if you create your website with just the right words, it lasts you for a good decade. Right. That's right. Be vague. It works. <laughs> it's like writing an abstract. This is sufficiently abstract to make it seem like you've done or you know what you've done. It's but, yeah. welcome to the show. It's lovely hey. to see you. Thank you. It's uh, lovely. I was too. as I started it with Chris, I always it's always fun to point out Michigan connections with people when we have them yes. because they're all over the place. Yes, everywhere. But, and I think I remember you as an undergrad when I was like a young grad student. Mm-hmm. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> young and dumb. I, I'm, I'm not so young anymore, but probably just as dumb. Uh, anyway, we always start the show with the exact same question so we can get to know a little bit more about you. And we've now heard the bit about you getting your PhD from Michigan. But take us back on your journey of how you got interested in anthropology and why you decided to pursue it as a career. Yeah, um, I'm sure everyone will be thrilled to hear my academic journey. It probably is very similar to other people's, maybe. Um, I went to college thinking I was going to be a scientist majoring in chemistry, um, and I I enjoyed that, and I was pretty good at it, but I took a psychology class and found that I was really interested in what people were doing, you know. What are people doing? What are they thinking? So I declared a major in psychology, and I ended up taking a little introductory class called Introduction to Biological Anthropology taught by Bill Leonard. And I think pretty much after that semester, I declared a minor. um, And then uh, I eventually declared a major as well. There are a lot of flaws to the psychological approach, in my opinion. And so I pretty much abandoned that. I finished the major, but I abandoned their approaches and I went with anthropology. And I thought I I got very lucky um, being at Northwestern where Bill was. Um, They had hired, they had just hired Tom McDade. And then as I was going through the program, I hired Chris Kazawa as well. So I I got very lucky being exposed to human biology from really great scientists. Very cool. So what made you choose Michigan for your graduate program? Hmm, It was a combination of um, advice and who admitted me. 
you know, <laughs> you're not going to get in everywhere you apply. Um, I mean, that works. I mean, and I know, you know, Bill has a Michigan connection too. So, exactly. I mean, that's a big part of it. But, and Bill yeah, did so, recommend going to Michigan um, and they did have money for me. Um, and so, and my parents went to Michigan. So I thought this will be, this will be fine. It'll be full circle. So can we go further back? Because I know you're a Hoosier, uh, Kara. I'm a Hoosier, and Kara is currently living in Hoosier land. So yes. uh, how did you get uh, – so you just told us why you went to Michigan, but uh, growing up in Indiana. So first, where are you from in Indiana? And two, how did you find out about anthropology if you did before going to college? Because I didn't. Yeah, I never heard of anthropology before going to college, period. And um, I did grow up um, in South Bend, Indiana, where Kara is now, um, just in the shadow of Notre Dame, um, like I said, my parents went to Michigan. They had moved to South Bend for work. And so none of us were really Notre Dame fans um, growing up in South Bend. And Kara, maybe shut your ears, maybe not. But one of the things growing up that I saw Notre Dame and its wealth compared to South Bend and its poverty was really stark and obvious, especially as someone who is a product of the public schools there. Um, the, the, the difference between those two things was really ugly to me as a teenager, and I didn't want to stay in South Bend. I mean, for personal reasons and for, for the fact that, that Notre Dame, I just, I, I didn't have a very high opinion of the university, unfortunately, um, as an outsider. Um, and so I was able to go to other universities. My, my father died and left me some money. Um, that allowed me to pursue an education that might have been out of reach otherwise. And so that's how I ended up mm. at Northwestern. Well, I'm sorry that your father passed and that that was what un uh, enabled you to uh, go on that path. But it sounds like you've been uh, held and, and embraced and nurtured by the Human Bio Association from the very, and the people in it, you know, it's the people yes. in it, not the association. The association is just sort of what we wrap ourselves around, but yes. um, from the very beginning. And um, so I want to point this out because, you know, you have a lot of really fascinating work and we asked you on here to talk about an article that is a big data analysis. It's probably like not yeah. the most representative of you, but the reason that we chose this and what one of the efforts that we're involved with, Bill, and you know, because AJHB co-sponsors the podcast with HBA. Um, we are trying to figure out if, if this has an impact on the works that are published in AJHB. So even though we want to hear more about your broader uh, work, we're going to highlight this article, see if it drives, yeah. uh, drives listeners to it. So let's talk about it. It's called A Critical Biocultural Approach to Early Growth in the United States. What inspired this in Haynes analysis that you did? And, and, and we've talked about in Haynes a little bit on the show before, but remind our listeners who may not have heard that episode or those episodes what, what this is. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked and that you highlighted the big data approach to it because I'm seeing, I'm visualizing for myself going forward using a lot of existing data as part of my research program and, and using techniques to tease out relationships. So I'm glad that that is, is part of the conversation going forward in the Human Biology Association and in AJHB. Um, so this project in particular, I was interested in seeing what the relationships were between birth weights as reported best it can be in something like the NHANES and um, in indicators of child growth. Now, the NHANES is the uh, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. So that's what it—that's what the full title of it is. 
And it is meant to be a survey of Americans with a representative population, essentially. So what they try to do is that they try to represent the U.S. population as best they can on the variables that they collect in terms of socioeconomic status, race as they define it, um, and, and other indicators, and, and location, so geography as well. So they end up with this very complex um, sample that's meant to give you the population prevalence of you know, various illnesses, of the biological status of Americans, and, and other things that might be of interest to health research, basically. So that's what the data set is. And like I said, I was interested in looking at the relationship, and I've used it before, but the more I've gone on with my career, the more I've, I've taken that sort of biocultural turn and focused more on social theory and how we define things socially and, and, and how we look at things from different, different perspectives. I would say I, would, I probably used the term biocultural a little bit shallowly earlier in my career, and now I'm trying to be a little bit more in depth with the use of culture. So I wanted to use this data set, but really interrogate what we mean by race in something like the NHANES. What is there that exists for socioeconomic status? Can we say something about poverty or not? And, and other things that might be present in a data set like that. One of the things I wrote in this paper was that a data set like the NHANES is the manifestation of what the government thinks of us in a way, and how they want to define us. So there we have people living in our borders, and they decide that they want to divide us up in terms of certain races or ethnicities, and then categorize us that way, which we may or may not agree with, but there is some utility in looking at how the government sees the people, in a sense. So. So that was really the, the genesis for that paper. And there were a few other topics I wanted to interrogate there. There was uh, a lot of papers out there looking at the growth of children, white and black children in the United States, and they would attribute these differences. There would be differences, and they would attribute these differences to genetics. And I wanted to um, flip the script on that. I wanted to say, what if we don't look at that as something that is genetic, but perhaps as a result of a social process, uh, what, what would those questions look like? I was really intrigued by this because, so just for everyone listening, like there are two sides of reading this article that struck me. One is, mm -hmm. as you point out, you're obviously diving into the biocultural theory, right? So like you set up biocultural as theory, which I find really interesting. Um, and then the data set in your analysis, it seems like something we all should have already looked at, right? Like this should have already been examined. Like I'm like, wait a minute, hasn't this been looked at? So what you're, what you're suggesting is there's more granularity there and there are more assumptions that have gone into how it's been analyzed yeah. than we've previously acknowledged. So I wonder how then methodologically, how you get at more of the culture yeah. in, in that data set? So how did you do that? How did you go about that? Yeah, you know, I, I think in some ways it's impossible to use the data set itself to define aspects of culture. Um, what you can do is, and I like the way you put that, is question the assumptions of the data set. There are huge assumptions being made in, in just how they define race and ethnicity. Um, and you, you can't be Hispanic and also white, for example. You have to be one or the other. They combine the two. Uh, there, there are a lot of problems with that. Um, so the approach I decided on was to draw in other bodies of literature that could help fill in the gap, right? You had these 
these social structures, these social definitions that were defined by the U.S. government, and then you have these health outcomes on the other hand, what is happening in the middle? Um, and the NHANES doesn't really say, but other researchers have said. And so my approach was to use the other literature that was out there to bridge the gaps and then also say, here's where we still don't know, or here's where we could still ask questions. Yeah, I like that. And I also like how you were very upfront about it, saying that you approach kind of the biocultural thing yeah. rather shallowly, and then you realize that we need to come at this in a more robust way, in a more intentional way. And I think that's important because it's also, I think, important for folks to understand that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, that's the kind of thing that takes a lot of effort and a lot of yes. time, and we can't be yes. experts in everything. So thank you for, for talking about that. Uh, and the other kind of ah. cool thing is you have this path diagram in this paper that is very complicated and arrows going everywhere. And both yes. Chris and I have had diagrams in, in our works that are, you know, similar, like, and it's not just one arrow, there are dotted ones and then different kinds of arrows to indicate different relationships, so on and so forth. And so when you have this sort of structural yeah. equation modeling, it's quite messy for sure, uh, but it gives us a lot of granularity. Uh, and so what does that granularity actually tell us? What can we take away? Yeah, from I, you know, diagram? and I will say um, anthropologists aren't very good at using path diagrams. It's really a, a tool of psychology a little bit more. Um, and I, I will say the one I published, I think, was a lot cleaner than some path analyses that I've seen. Um, there's actually like one one through path that I tried to hypothesize. Um, but but the, the idea behind that path model was that there would be certain factors that would correspond with birth weight. And then birth weight would then be associated with these child growth indicators. And the way you have to do a path model is that you you have to hypothesize that all of the relationships are there. And then you test and see which ones are significant and remove the non-significant ones and hope that the model fits better. Um, and luckily in this case it did, but it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of an art to the process basically. Hopefully it doesn't look too bad to the person who's reading no, it. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's important because it, it shows, and I don't mean messy by like yeah. artistically messy. I mean, humans are messy when you combine yes. the biology and the culture and that's what it represents. And so that's kind of why we want to bring it up that you have all of these things going yes. on. And so it can be really hard to parse out actual causation versus just correlation. Yes. And so I think it's good to have that. And so yes. what can we take from this? Say, let's look at birth weight kind of generationally that mm -hmm. how does birth weight of generation one perhaps impact right. birth weight and growth of generation two? Right. Absolutely. I mean, that was not available for the NH, but in general, yeah, that is something you could use a, a structural equation model for. I think you know, if there is a turn toward more big data and you have these big data sets like this, uh, techniques like path modeling and structural equation modeling and looking for latent variables that exist in data sets, I think become important techniques for getting at some of the bigger issues or some of the things that might be hidden in some of this big data that, you know, maybe wasn't collected directly for your question, but could still be useful somehow anyway. Um, and, and in the case of something like, intergenerational or or something that has a time depth like birth weight versus um, child growth, you know that there is a, a time relationship between them. So you know that, you know, child growth doesn't come before birth weight, right? So you can at least infer some sort of causation there. So one of the, you know, and I just want to reiterate, like when we say messy, it's it's actually a reflection <laughs> of what humans are like. And, and 
Um, anthropologists get criticized a lot for tackling projects where we don't have rigorous controls, right? And that's what we often mean when we say messy and we are trying to collect data that we can't control and we're trying to include it in models. And it often gets left, uh, especially in, in data sets that are small, those variables get left on the side because we can't collect enough information about some of that stuff for it to be statistically meaningful, for there to be any power. So NHANES provides that sort of opportunity and that, that's what I see. So it's an excellent exercise at a, at a point in your career, I guess. Um, I know we've talked to people who train grad students on this, so it's not like you wait 10 years in before you start jumping into big data, but um, I think we, we all have had a similar experience of thinking I'm biocultural, but am I really? I'm more bio or I'm more cultural. And it, it really takes us a long time to learn how to tease out relationships and to even get used to playing with some of these big data sets. Your discussion reminded me of our the literature on the Dutch hunger winter, which we always point back to is this, this example of intergenerational or transgenerational implications of, of some cultural event like World War II and starvation. And what I'm sensing in your paper here is the the racial discrimination and the many, many things, right, that we, we had um, Connie Mulligan and Lance Gravely on talking about weathering, right, telomere weathering. So I'm thinking like all those little, little things are in there. And I wonder if you can see that kind of transgenerational effect of cultural stress in, in your data set? You know, I don't think it's really possible in the NHANES. They just don't have the relation. It's a cross-sectional sample and that is it. So you really do not have that unless you take birth weight as a proxy for mother's condition. If you do that, then maybe you have a, a, a little bit more of an indication of transgenerational relationship. But otherwise, I think that it, you won't you won't be able to have the sort of rich uh, intergenerational study that something like the Dutch Hunger Winter would have, or or um, the Cebu Project would have. It, it, the, it, the data just aren't structured that way, unfortunately. I wish it were. <laughs> it would be very interesting. But yeah, so I mean, part of this, which you've been alluding to a number of times, is that with the NHANES data, you are limited by how they set things up, the assumptions they build in, and then there's this infamous <laughs> other category that you dive into. <laughs> oh. I found the button to push uh, this infamous other category, uh, which you dive into in the discussion. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about you know, why we need to pick this apart and then what that can mean when it comes to our analysis and interpretation. Yes, yes. Well, I, I, I think I briefly mentioned before the race ethnicity category in the NHANES is extremely problematic. Um, you can be a um, race or ethnicity, but not both. Um, and their categories are extremely limited. They have um, white black or African-American, Hispanic, non-Mexican, Hispanic and Mexican-American, and then the other category. And basically anyone who doesn't fit into these other categories goes in the other category. And that includes people who indicate that they have more than one race. Um, it's people who are Asian-American, at least for certain survey years. Um, it is people who indicate they're indigenous or Native American and probably, I think Pacific Islander as well. So, um, and then more. So as you can imagine, a lot of people are lumped into one category and they do it for analytical reasons because the number of people in the United States is somewhat limited, maybe percentage wise. 
Um, so for analytical reasons, they may do that to have a category that's big enough to statistically analyze. But the NHANES has dealt with this before by oversampling in a category and then using sample weights to, to bring that population prevalence in line with what's happening in the United States. They haven't, haven't done that um, except until 2016, when it, that is finally when they decided to separate out Asian American as a category um, from the rest, but the rest of the people in the other category remain the same. So um, even if you're not looking at that other category, the other ones are still very problematic as well. Um, but again, this is how the U.S. government sees us, sees the people of the United States, at least. The other, other ones. So when you pull those apart, what are the biological implications of, like, what did you find? Uh, uh, in terms of the research or in terms of what's in the other category? Yeah, no, no, the research and in the other category. Like, we want to, we, we don't yeah. want to skirt around your central findings here. Like, tell us. Well, I, well, I'm not able to pull apart the other category. Um, and this is a problem because we know that there are higher prevalences of, of low birth weight coming from different populations, especially you know, if individuals are um, first-generation immigrants, immigration status is also not mentioned. There's a lot of things not in here. <laughs> so, so birth weight uh, may be impacted by you know where your family is from, where your family's ancestry is from, um, what your where your, what your history is. One of the one of the main findings um, was that at Black or African American children um, were much more likely to be found as low birth weight, uh, which is a a finding in line with all the other findings in the United States, but that in terms of height for age, um, as children, they're actually slightly taller um, than other children. So whatever is going on with birth weight, um, it, it's hard to know what the pathway is there, but it seems to be at least somewhat different. Um, and, and the data are, they, they don't really say why. That's where we get into, I guess that's where I'm sort of thinking about that Dutch hunger winter thing again, knowing what, and, and you get into this, the developmental origins of health and disease or fetal programming, like there's a suggestion that if they're low birth weight, this are going to have lifelong consequences and potentially intergenerational consequences, right? Yep. Okay. That is absolutely the case. Um, it's, it's hard to know what happens with sort of this maybe catch up growth that's happening or catch up length. Um, it, the, the data set don't say whether or not these babies are short but when they're born. But yeah, there, there's a potentially catch-up growth. I focused a little less, I think, on the DOHAD implications of it than the, the explanations that really stem from a sense of medical racism. Um, and there have been some really interesting frameworks out there um, about medical racism as it applies to um, Black Americans um, and in medical contexts. Um, and, and there is specifically a, uh, this idea that Black children are either seen as weak and sickly or extremely strong and hearty. And this stems from the longstanding racialized belief about, about the physical abilities of, of Black Americans, um, dating back to slavery, honestly. Um, and so this, this belief has not really been interrogated explicitly in the literature as much as I would like to say. It has often been explained as something that is genetic, difference between the races. Um, Stanley Garn, for example, thought that um, some of these indicators could, could and should be explained by genetic ancestry. And I have not come across a hypothesis that explains this taller height in terms of something social. 
I mean, we fascinating. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we explain growth in terms of poverty all the time, which poverty is social. Um, but when we see the when we see racial differences and we know race is socially constructed, um, mm. we don't have a social hypothesis for why there's yeah. a difference. Um, no one hmm. has asked. Well, there's somebody's uh, PhD. <laughs> you just gave somebody their PhD idea. Um, and so this, I mean, it's the NHANES data, which is a U.S. sample. And as you said, a, a cross-sectional sample of just a few cities across the United States. So what can we, if we were to zoom out from this, what can be broadly applicable from, from the study you conducted here? Um, there were a couple of takeaways I wanted to, uh, for people when they read this. One, that if you're using big data, um, you need to be very careful to question the assumptions that were there. Make sure when, so when, when, they, when they give you a category or a variable, don't just unquestionably accept it. You know, question it. Question what that means and what they're trying to say to you. Um, and then the second one is that you don't need all of the pieces of the biocultural pie to still have a biocultural project. This, this, the NHANES really is, is extremely limited and bare if you want to take a biocultural approach. But if you start to slot in all these other little pieces from other people who have done little bits of biocultural work or cultural work or um, even just biological work and you, you start to piece them together, you can create this bigger picture from these you know, bare bone results. So those are the two things I wanted to people to take away. I like um, as well your, your emphasis on local biologies and, and, and essentially what I took away here is, is you're, you're noting that even though this is a national data set and we can see some differences between white and African-American samples, they're not monolithic, right? We, we have this terrible, terrible assumption in the United States that white people are, are similar no matter where you go, black people are similar no matter where you go, and that they don't have the, the sort of nuance that, I mean, the weird subcultures that every every group has that every kid every every parent has kids who are weirdos and not weirdos you know like we all have those those children having just come from a bot misfer where we had this conversation over look what our kids turned out how could we ever plan to like raise them to be this thing when they insist on being that thing right so we know that about every people but then when we do research we tend to like reduce them to these sort of monolithic things and african-american culture and the many, many different local biologies that have influenced them typically get left out. So since you you go into local biologies theory, right, a little bit, I, I wonder if you want to put a pin in that and say anything more about how NHANES helps us understand local variation in different ethnic groups or different racial, so-called racial groups. Right. Yeah, I honestly don't think it really can. I mean that it just straight up can't. Uh, but you you are right that um, I, I I do think that this can't really be the only type of research somebody does in anthropology. You do have to get out on the ground sometimes and see what is going on. Um, some of my my breastfeeding research that I've done with biomedical collaborators, we we did some qualitative research and we enrolled Black American women, and it turned out that they certainly weren't a monolith. We had some women who had. Um, ancestry in the United States for generations and might call themselves African-American. There were other women who had ancestry that went to the Caribbean. So their families had immigrated here within the last generation or two. And so they may, or, or even she may have been born somewhere in the Caribbean. So 
the approaches to breastfeeding were a lot different and the beliefs about breastfeeding were a lot different depending on, on who you were talking to. So you can't say that black women here in Tampa are a, a monolith at all. And that's going to be the same across the United States. Um, and the picture will look different somewhere else compared to Tampa, Florida. I think that's a, a wonderfully important point for everybody to remember that, you know, how we want to find population, what that means, and then how broadly applicable when we say this is a population when maybe yeah. it's not so much a population. So whether it's breast milk and immunity or using NHANES data, what's next for <laughs> Well, you? I actually have a third strand of research that I have been working on since I was a little grad student. Um, and that is looking at iron status in women um, and their reproduction. And that that work has been a thread that's that's continued. And I think I've decided to pivot to it a little bit more full time recently. Um, I've completed a book manuscript on it and <laughs> it's turned in. Let's keep your fingers crossed. That it will be accepted and published. Um, and I also am working on an NSF funded project linking experiences of discrimination and racism to the gut microbiome, to the absorption of iron and the iron status, and then um, birth outcomes in women here in Tampa. I'm very excited. It combines my interest in the microbiome that I've been doing with um, some of my biomedical colleagues with very low birth weight infants um, here in Tampa um, with my interest in iron status and testing more explicitly some of these hypotheses. So we are predicting that experiences of uh, racism among black women here will affect iron absorption and um, dysbiosis of the gut. That will impact pregnancy outcomes um, and and recovery of iron after birth. So we can expect I, to see these things. Can I ask you really quickly, for a future episode, we'll definitely have you on to talk about your book and probably yeah, ask you. you this question again. Yes, of course. <laughs> How does the sense of discrimination or stress affect the absorption of iron? How would that work? We're not entirely sure yet. Um, I suspect that it's going to be... Um, I think there might be a couple of pathways, you know, and this is something where we may end up using something like a, a, a structural equation model, um, again, um, to look at, at the different pathways. It may be, um, it, one pathway may be via diet and what somebody consumes. It, it, someone may not be able to access iron as well, or it may be because stress is linked to gut inflammation and dysbiosis of the microbiome. There are a lot of microbes in your gut that actually really like to feed on iron. Um, and if you give them iron, they bloom, they grow. So, and then at the same time, inflammation also affects iron withholding. So you don't absorb as much iron if you have inflammation present. So it's a whole circle of stuff. <laughs> oh, fa that's, that's fascinating. And I can see we yeah. have at least one other episode uh, in our future. And we haven't talked about iron uh, at all. Uh, we have had several microbiome and no iron, so that'll be awesome. I feel like we may have had something like when we've had helminth discussions before, and that yes. can be related to iron, but Links. yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I decided to step into this gap. Um, you know, a, a million people have done breastfeeding. It got really popular right around the same time. We all decided to do it at the same time, right? Um, and so it's difficult to make a name for yourself if you are doing what everyone else is doing. Um, but nobody is studying iron status in women, despite the fact 
you know, iron deficiency anemia contributes to about 20% of maternal deaths in the world. Mm. So um, it is a critical, critical problem and no anthropologist is talking about it. It's at me. Yeah. Yeah. I, rem yeah. I remember uh, the pregnant, my wife's pregnancy and her iron levels were wacky and she could not yeah. find a pill to take to get them right. That didn't make her want to vomit. So it was really. Yes. I'm one of those two. I vomit up iron pills. So yep. <laughs> it's just like, eh, I'll just eat more meat. Eat more space. Yeah, it's you may have even another episode to talk to me and a collaborator, but that is absolutely a protective mechanism mm. to keep your body from absorbing too much iron. Ooh, yeah, fascinating. What else do you do? What what what, com <laughs> what completes you, Elizabeth? <laughs> so outside of academia, huh? It's hard to ask that after the pandemic because I do a lot less now than I did before. <laughs> um, I am a amateur but classically trained soprano and I appear with the Master Choral of Tampa Bay here in Florida. Um, we perform masterworks with the professional orchestra in town. That is so cool. Um, I have also done improv, which I think Kara has knows about that a little bit, um, but that has pretty much died here in Tampa, so I have not been doing much of that. Um, I will try to do performances when I can of things like musical theater, light opera, but again, Tampa is not really an art central, so did you attempt to do like online improv? My husband attempted it for like two or three sessions. He's like, that's the worst. I will never do online improv ever again. <laughs> I um, I took an online workshop and the, the person who did it actually did a really good job. But other than that, um, and you know what? No, I appeared in an online festival. <laughs> but other than I mean, those, it's hard. Like it's hard doing improv on Zoom is really difficult. And so, yeah, my husband had like the same like because of COVID, his improv just like he hasn't gone back to it now since. Yeah. So I get it. But are you yeah. reading, watching, listening to anything fun you want to share? Oh boy, um, not really. I'm not a major media consumer, believe it or not. Um, I, I adopted a small dog, and he's a lot of fun. Oh. <laughs> Chris and I are both big science fiction readers and so we always love getting book recommendations from people which is why I always make sure to ask that question like what books can you tell me about <laughs> no, I, you know I, I have not started yet but I have sitting there um, Ursula Le Guin's Steering the Craft to Hell integrate yeah. more storytelling into my writing yeah so, yeah I love that I love I love it for that right the storytelling yes. piece yeah no yes. that's great and I just discovered, I didn't know you were even on Twitter, but I just found you on your website. You have Human Bio Lab, so we can join the yeah. 70 other people that follow you. Yeah, you can. Um, I haven't posted anything in there in probably, what, a decade? I see that. I see that. But, but nonetheless, nonetheless, you have. you tagged now. You'll get, you'll... I'm not on Twitter, really. Yeah, that's all right. Well, um, if anyone is interested in learning more about your research, uh, Dr. Miller also has a website, humanbiolab.wordpress.com. Are you active there? Yeah. Not really, but um, if you emailed me at my university address, you'd find me for sure. <laughs> Which is emm3 at usf.edu. Yes. And it, or you can Google Elizabeth Miller and yes. sort through all the actresses named Elizabeth Miller until, you find, right. Right. until you find her. Right. Thank you. Professor who is specializes in Dracula. She's yeah, funny. I saw that one too. I saw that one too. Yeah, sometimes it's really funny to look up our guests. The work, the yeah. hardest one was when we interviewed Elizabeth Sweet, and there are actually two. I think two other academics named Elizabeth Sweet in the same university or the same oh, town. No. 
and we yeah, messed- the research not that different either not like, that different we similar oh. enough we were like oh, yeah. crap which site are we going to it was health disparity stuff and i was like i don't actually know if i know what elizabeth looks like do i have the right person here yeah so that was that was the thing but anyway, anyway miller thank you so we know- very much yeah. <laughs> thank you see what me. we do see, see what we do here <laughs> the sausage is messy yes very messy the papers are messy the results still need work. So thank you so much. Enjoy your holidays. Yes. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And hopefully yeah. see you in Reno. Yes, you will. Yeah. We have meetings to go to. I'm sure I'll see you there. And I'll, I'll see you on an HBA EC meeting very soon. That's right. Huh. Later That's right. Week, I think. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye, Elizabeth. Take care. Bye, Kara. Bye. Bye.